Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne, your holy presence, to worship your holy name, to worship your holy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sins, paid in full everything that we owed. And now we stand holy and blameless before you. And what a marvelous testimony of the gospel of Christ, that it has gone deeper than the stain has gone. And Lord, there's nothing that we could ever do to stain ourselves that, in a way that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse us. So we thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who teaches us all these things to be true. And we just pray again this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ from Leviticus and asking for clarity on my part and asking for hearing on the part of your people and asking for your blessing on this message as it goes out to as many as have been appointed to hear it. And Lord, we are just thankful again. May you be with us as we worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We seek to be very clear in our teaching because there are a lot of places that call themselves churches, a lot of places that are saying Jesus, 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 a lot of places that are saying gospel, 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 and yet they have nothing of Jesus and they have no gospel to tell you. These are spiritual matters. This is not about choosing a candidate to be the president of the United States because every four years we have opportunity to correct that. Salvation is an eternal matter. So it's serious business. And because it's serious business, I want to take it seriously because this is a huge responsibility to come and say, I know what you need to put your confidence on for all of eternity. And you coming and resting all of yourself and all of your eternity on what I am telling you. So this is serious business. And this is why you don't want to just listen to anybody. But for you to not be able to listen to anybody, you also need to know the truth. And you are not going to know the truth just overnight. You require someone who is careful, who actually teaches the truth. And because teaching requires time, our sermons always tend to be long, but you appreciate the learning. The purpose of doing this is so that when you go out, I am not always with you. <laughs> to make the discernment that you, you have to make and say, okay, they are saying Jesus, they are saying the gospel, but they don't believe the true gospel. They don't believe in the true Jesus of the Bible. So to guide yourself, because this is about your soul. So I come here to teach you the truth of God as much as I've been given ability. And I know it's long. I'll be so tired more than you guys at the end of it. But I do it anyway because I think it's important for your own souls to know who Christ is and to know what your hope is. Okay? The issue is not how often you come to church. The issue is do you know the truth? There are people who even have three sermons or three services a week, but there's no gospel there. <laughs> there's no gospel. Some people have gone to church for 10, 15 years, they actually have never heard the gospel. But if you come in here, you always hear the gospel. That's one thing that I'll guarantee you. You always hear the gospel. And when I go to Africa, they're going to hear the gospel. That's one thing that you can trust I'm going to do. So praise the Lord for that. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, 
It's going to be a lot of reading. I think I'm going to read the whole chapter. Reading is not one of my best gifts, but I'm going to read it anyway. This is a day of atonement. And it's a very, very important understanding that the Lord has given us from the book of Leviticus that we should know how God saves sinners. We need to know how God saves sinners. And the reason why we continue to do what we do is so that I may teach you the knowledge of how God saves sinners. That's the knowledge that you need. You need to know how God saves sinners. We don't need money from anybody, even though I could use more money. Okay. <laughs> Leviticus 16, we are going to read the whole chapter. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the gods as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two gods and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two gods, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the god on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the God on which the Lord fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer, full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15, Then he shall kill the God of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring his blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, 
and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Leviticus sixteen nineteen to 22. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an ending of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the life God. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the life God, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the God and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The God shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the God in the wilderness. Leviticus sixteen twenty three to 34 Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the God as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the God for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, their offal. Verse 28, Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. There's a lot of teaching. Sermon title. It's kind of a strange title, but I'm going to give it anyway. But it's long. No man is to be in the tabernacle until atonement is finished. Or the day of atonement and the resurrection of Christ. The day of atonement and the resurrection of Christ. And this is the Lord's table. This is communion. And as always, we preach the gospel of Jesus' accomplished work in the salvation of his people. The work of Christ has been 
depicted in the Old Testament by different types and shadows. It was depicted in the Passover lamb in the list of the children of Israel from their captivity or bondage in Egypt. If you still remember, the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years before God came to set them free. They were set free, they were purchased, they were redeemed. That's the language of salvation. They were set free, they were purchased, they were redeemed, they were ransomed by the shedding of the blood of the sacrifice that God had commanded them. The children of Israel were set free from captivity and saved from God's judgment which judgment was also on Egypt. The judgment that God brought to Egypt was not just on Egypt alone. It was on all of Egypt, including the children of Israel. The children of Israel only escaped judgment because they had the blood of the sacrifice that God had commanded them to have. So the children of Israel had the blood of the Lamb put on their door lentils and door posts. And the instruction that was given to them was in Exodus 12:23, and he says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two door posts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. When the Lord sees the blood, you pass over you. He won't judge you. That's all. And our sermon is done. That's the gospel. When the Lord comes in judgment, he's only looking for one thing, the blood. If he sees it, passes over you. It's done. That's the gospel. It's done. He's not looking for the good things that you did, the bad things that you did. He's not going to be weighing them to see if the scale will tip one way or the other. Just looking for the blood. And this is the message that the church is failing to preach. The Lord is just looking for the blood of the sacrifice that he commanded. If he sees it, it's done. So on this night, what mattered is not what the people had done. Whether good or evil, or what they were afraid of. It mattered not if they could see the blood, for they could not see it. It was a dark night. And Moses says, it was so dark that the darkness could be felt. And yet God still saw the blood. <laughs> the darkness of our sin, the darkness of their sin did not blind God as to not see his people. It is not the darkness that blinded God to his people's sins, but the blood that was on their doors, the blood that was on them. God saw their blood and he was satisfied and he passed over them. He did not judge them. He judged his people in the blood of the sacrifice so that they were seen as righteous in that shed blood. So this is what God did. He did not judge his people in themselves. He judged them in the sacrifice that he commanded for his people. And as long as one had the blood of the sacrifice, the sacrifice that God had appointed, there was no judgment to fall on them 
And that is salvation. And that is the gospel. Salvation was not in the fear or weakness of those covered by the blood of the Lamb. There were people in there, in their houses, in their hearts, who were scared to death. They were thinking, God is going to kill us. God did not save those who were afraid. For there were many in Egypt who were afraid, but he did not save them. But those who were chosen and had the blood, whether they were afraid or not. (laughs) God did not save the strong, but those who had the blood. Salvation was not in the confidence of those who had strong door locks, those who had electric fences. Of course, they didn't have them then, but you get the point. Or those who had strong faith. Salvation was in that God saw the blood of the sacrifice that he commanded because it is the blood that makes atonement. It's the blood that makes you at one with God. That's what atonement means. It's at one meant. It makes you at one with God because of the blood of his son. So salvation was in that those who were covered by the blood were elect and had the blood of the sacrifice. So what we see is election does not save anyone, but it qualifies them to partake of the redemption that is in the blood of the sacrifice. So you are elected to redemption. Election itself does not save, but it sets you to be redeemed. If you are elect, you are going to be redeemed. It doesn't matter what happens in this universe. You are going to be saved. And this teaching of redemption by the blood of a sacrifice. When we talk about redemption, we are saying setting someone free by the payment of a price. That's redeeming. So the children of Israel were redeemed, were set free at the price of the blood of the lamb that was killed. And so this teaching of redemption by the blood of a sacrifice did not stop with the Passover lamb and the Exodus. God continued to give more details of salvation and this work of the gospel was also pictured in the work of atonement that was done on the day of atonement. This was the most important day or one of the most important days in the history of Israel, the Passover and the day of atonement, I would think would have been the most important days in the history of Israel. The day of atonement was a day set aside every year on which Aaron, the high priest, would enter into the holy of holies or the most holy place that he may make atonement for his own sins, the sins of his family, and the sins of all of Israel. The holy of holies was separated from all the tabernacle by this curtain. And no one could go beyond that curtain who was not the high priest. And they could not go beyond that curtain on any other day which was not the day of atonement. The high priest was to approach God in a very specific way. Or else he would die. If you are reading, as we read in Leviticus 16, the instruction is, if you don't do this, guess what? You die, you die, you die. 
God is very particular about how he has to be approached. And the tabernacle and the priesthood provided a platform for God to teach about sin and salvation, about the common and the uncommon, about the clean and the unclean, and about the proper way to approach a holy and righteous God. God was by this teaching, teaching man that he is holy and that men are sinners and that sin needs atonement. And atonement could not be made whichever way sinners determined to do it. You can't take God to watch a movie to make atonement for sin over popcorn. It doesn't work like that. Rather, atonement has to be done by the way that God has determined. Otherwise, God would not honor whatever it is that you bring. And you will die. Aaron's sons, Nedab and Abihu, Aaron was the high priest and he had four sons, I believe. Aaron's sons, Nedab and Abihu, used to work in the tabernacle as priests. And they tried to make some seemingly subtle improvements on God's teaching on how he has to be approached and he killed them instantly. He electrocuted them for not following instructions. And that God has not changed. He is still the same God. Sinners have to be taught on how to approach him in peace. That's the issue of the gospel. The gospel is saying, this is who God is. He is holy. This is who you are. You are not holy. You are a sinner. And he has an appointment with you. How are you going to meet with him in peace? That's what God is teaching. And there's a lot of glorious teaching of the gospel and the work of Jesus in the activities that were depicted on this particular day of atonement. I think the whole gospel and its theology can be extracted just from the activities and the commands that God gave to be followed on this day. Sin, atonement, propitiation, justification, resurrection can all be found in Leviticus 16, as we shall find. But let us go to the text. Now we're going to work our text. We're not going to work every verse of the text, but I think we're going to work up to verse 18, and then I'll skip the majority of the remainder of the, of the verses, okay? Otherwise, we'll be here until 3 o'clock. <laughs> Let's go to, to the text, verse 1 of Leviticus 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died again. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. This is what we are teaching. The tabernacle was a big tent, and it had compartments. It had three compartments. The first compartment had some furniture. It had an altar where animals were killed. And then after that, there was another compartment called the holy place. And it had some furniture in there. It had a lamp. It had the table of showbread. And beyond that compartment, there was the holy of holies or the most holy place. 
And this is where the high priest could not go in at any time, save for one time a year. And in that place, the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, it was just some box that was gold-plated. And in it had three things. It had the law of God, the two tablets of stone. It had the manna, and it had the rod of Aaron that were enclosed in that Ark of the Covenant. And it was covered on the top by a golden plate, the mercy seat. And now Aaron is being given instructions on how he has to go beyond that veil to go into this place. So that's basically what we are talking about. Okay, just for some background. So God was very specific and said to Moses, tell Aaron not to just show up anytime into the holy place inside the veil. Don't just show up. Why? Because you will die. Why? Because God was there. He was present. He was to appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Sinners think they are just going to show up in the presence of God and expect to live. They expect him to give them a hug. No, it doesn't work like that. But God says, no, it does not work like that. You have to have the instructions. You have to have the manual to approach me or else you are dead. Verse 3 and 4. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. So this is how Aaron is to enter into the presence of God. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. God says, okay, listen, this is how to approach me safely. <laughs> this is how you're going to approach me safely. You are to approach me by the blood of a sacrifice. The blood of a young bull, which is going to be for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Remember the first piece of furniture in the tabernacle as you entered was the altar. And God was saying by this, before you even think about going any further to approach him, sacrifice, death, blood, or else do not proceed any further. Now that we have the blood, what else does Aaron need? You need the blood. As soon as you begin to think too much towards God, God says, first thing, blood. Without the blood, don't even think about doing it. You have to have blood. That's the first thing that you need. And now that we have the blood, what else does Aaron need? Verse 4, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. So Aaron needs to be ceremonially clean and wear holy garments. What was that about? God was not saying, for you to approach me, you need to have new clothes. God was not saying, you go to the mall and get you a new suit and a new dress and new shoes. No, that's not what he was saying. This was a picture of the cleanliness and the holiness of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who was innocent, who was undefiled and separate from sinners. God was saying for anyone to be qualified to bring an offering before him, they have to be sinless. They have to be clean. That's the point. Verse 5 and 6. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the gods as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. So Aaron had to make atonement for his own sins because he was just like us. And that of his house to make him fit to make atonement for the sins of the rest of Israel. If Aaron skipped this step, his sacrifice for the sins of Israel would not atone for sin and God would not accept it. And Aaron would be killed as happened to his two sons. So Aaron had to make atonement for his own sins because he was a sinner. But once he had finished making atonement for himself, that qualified him to make atonement for others, for the rest of the sins of Israel. And this was teaching Aaron and the Israelites of the need of the sinless mediator to make atonement. So God was here stating the qualifications of a high priest. You are not just going to pick up some cute somebody from the streets to be your mediator. They have to be appointed and qualified by God to intercede for you. You have to have the mediator, the intercessor, who has been appointed by God to stand for you. Even the court appoints a public defender for you if you can't afford a lawyer, right? Yeah. Hebrews 7, 26 and 28 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. So what is the right of Hebrews saying? He is making a distinction between the priesthood of the law, the priesthood of the Old Testament, with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Christ was fitting to be a high priest for us because he is holy. He is harmless. He is undefiled. Jesus Christ is harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And he does not need daily as those high priests in the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins because he didn't have any. So Jesus does not need to make atonement for himself because he never sinned. The atonement that he made was only for his people. And that atonement, he completed it. He did it once for all time, not for all people. Not for all people. Every time people see all, they're like, okay, see, it's right there. He's saying everybody. No. <laughs> so what is, what is he saying? He's saying salvation is about having a high priest who is sinless and undefiled to stand in your place and offer a sacrifice 
for your sins as your mediator. And the acceptance of the sacrifice. And thus the justification of those represented by the high priest and the sacrificed rested in the quality of the high priest and the sacrifice offered before God. So this is the issue of salvation. You need a representative. You need a mediator. You need someone who stands on your behalf before God. But not only that, they stand on your behalf and also bring a sacrifice to pay for your sins. So what God is teaching in Leviticus 16 is the qualification of the one who can make atonement on your behalf. He's teaching that because men don't know that. God has to teach you that. And he has taught us that. And he is telling us that if your sin has to be removed, it can only be in this person called Jesus Christ because he alone is qualified to do that work. There's nobody else. There are no two ways to heaven. There are no two ways to God. All these other religions cannot take you to heaven. They can't give you life. They can't give you righteousness. Why? Because they don't approach God through the one that God has appointed, through the one that God accepts. You see, Jesus has already been accepted by God. And because we are in him, we also have been accepted in him. Hear this. God sees his people through their mediator. God does not see you for you. God does not see you for who you are. He only looks at you through the eyes of Christ. You have to understand that. If God is pleased with the mediator, he is also pleased with those that he mediates for. If God is pleased with the sacrifice that the mediator brought, he is also happy with all those represented by the death of that sacrifice. Can I hear that? These are important theological things that I'm teaching. God only looks at you through the sacrifice of the mediator. If he accepted the mediator, then he accepted you. If he accepted the sacrifice that the mediator brought to him, then he also accepted you. So we have been accepted in the beloved. That's the gospel. So when you waste time looking at your own sins and all your struggles and thinking, oh, God is mad at me today because I did not give that homeless man one buck. No, it doesn't work like that. That's not salvation. It's just you tripping on you. <laughs> salvation is serious business. God has already accepted his people in the sacrifice and the high priest that he appointed for them. And Jesus Christ is their sacrifice and their mediator. But the law of Moses had this huge weakness in that it appointed men who had the weakness of sin to come and represent sinners before God. I like Paul when he comes because it slows me down. I explain a whole lot of things. But I, I don't want you to miss what I'm talking about. I, I just love to explain things. He has to understand what it is that we are talking about. The law of Moses had this huge weakness in that it appointed men to represent sinners who were also sinners. <laughs> a sinner representing another sinner. A maggot representing another maggot. And that does not work. And when we are talking about the law, we are talking about the whole old covenant. 
the covenant that God made with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai when he took them out of Egypt. And that covenant has the Ten Commandments as the heart of it. The Ten Commandments were the two tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenant. So those are the Old Covenant. A lot of people play with that and say, oh no, we are still under the Old Covenant. No, you are not under the Old Covenant. They say the Old Covenant that we are not under is just a ceremonial part of it. No, you are not under the Old Covenant. You are under the New. When you are looking at covenants, covenants come as a unit. The law of Moses comes as a unit with everything that it said. 613 rules. You don't pick and choose which ones you want to do. The new covenant comes with its own set of rules. But you don't mix the two. Because that's adultery. Because a covenant, the thinking of a covenant is based on marriage. You can't be married to more than one person at a time. And that's exactly the idea. You are either under the old covenant or under the new covenant. You can never be under both of them. Never. Even though there's a lot of teaching in the church that tries to marry the old and the new, you can't do that. So the Levitical priesthood was established by the law or the law was mediated by the Levitical priesthood. And so the law by default, cannot save anyone. The law cannot save anyone by reason of who it elects or appoints for sinners to draw near to God. The law can't save you because the people that are supposed to represent you before God are sinners. Also, they offer sacrifices that do not remove sin. The blood of bulls and gods could never take away sin. So that's the problem with the law. So the law as a covenant has a weak priesthood and has useless sacrifices. All that blood that the children of Israel were shedding for 1400 years never removed any sin. (laughs) Never. Because if it could remove sin, they would have stopped doing it. But they kept doing it until Jesus showed up. So the law as a covenant has a weak priesthood and has useless sacrifices and so it could never perfect a sinner. Because I am a sinner, I need perfection. And I am going with whoever can give me perfection and it's Jesus. But the writer of Hebrews says, but the oath, the word of the new covenant in the blood of Christ, not in the blood of bulls, which came after the law appoints the son, you see the qualification of the one who can perfect you. He is the son. He's not just some other Jewish guy. He is the son of God himself who has been perfected forever. And it is this one that God has appointed to stand for you. The son is qualified and is able to make atonement that actually saves because he is not weak like the priests of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. But Moses and the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, came from the Levites. Jacob had 12 sons. And of the 12 sons, God came and said, those who are descendants 
of Levites are the only ones who can work in the temple to do all this work. That's why we always talk about the Levitical priesthood. It's only the Levites from among the 12 tribes who were given the charge of the temple ministry, the tabernacle ministry. You understand that? So Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. But Moses and the Levitical priesthood were the mediators of the old covenant. And one does not mediate more than one covenant. A covenant is marriage, and being in more than one covenant is adultery. Okay, We have to understand that because a lot of preachers don't make that distinction. If Jesus mediated the old covenant, then salvation would have been by the old covenant. And there would be no need of the new covenant. There is the new covenant because the old could never save you. Because it did not have the resources to save you or to perfect you. It could never perfect you. But the son has been perfected forever as our mediator of the new. And that, my friends, is a very clear distinction between the law and the gospel. And this is all saying Jesus alone is he who saves and not the law. The law could never save you. Verse 7, 8, 9 to 11. Aaron shall take the two gods and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two gods, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the God on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the God on which the Lord fell to the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. So there was a lot of killing going on this day. This was a day of blood, blood flowing like a river. Aaron was to take two gods and present them before the Lord, and he was to cast lots for the two gods to determine which of the two was supposed to be slaughtered. One lot was for the Lord. That is, the one that was to die as a sin offering is the one that is the Lord's lot. And the other lot was for the scapegoat, the one God that was going to be set free into the wilderness. Now, the two gods exegeted each other. What does that mean? It means they explained each other. The one God that died as a sin offering died to make atonement for sin. The sin that had been confessed and imputed on the scapegoat. So this is what is happening. Aaron cast lots for the two gods and he determined which of the two gods was to be killed. And on the other god that was not going to be killed, Aaron was to lay his hands on it and confess all the sins. Not just some. <laughs> Aaron confessed all the sins of the children of Israel on that God. God reckoned all the sins of the children of Israel as having been put on that God. Why does the Holy Spirit say all the sins? Why not say some of the sins? Because he was teaching about salvation. All the sins of God's people 
were confessed on Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus took upon himself all the sins and the majority of your sins, they are not even aware of them. <laughs> Praise the Lord that he confessed all the sins. Because if I say, Kim, for you to be saved, I need you to confess all your sins. You're not going to be saved. Why? Because you don't know the majority of your sins. But praise the Lord, he knows all your sins and all your sins were confessed on the sacrifice. That's good news. Good news. So the two gods, one on which the sins were confessed was the one that was set free. But the other one died as a sin offering. Why does it die if it did not have any sins on it? If it dies, it's because God's law is also imputing the sins on it. Because without death, there's no remission of sin, right? Without blood, there's no remission of sin. So the God that died and the God that was set free were the one and same God. They were teaching the same thing, but there's some theological thing going on that God is also teaching. He's teaching about the death and resurrection of Christ. Because the God cannot die and resurrect. So God had to use two of them. One to die and one to set free. You get that? It's good. So they're releasing into the wilderness of the scapegoat. That's where a lot of people use scapegoat. This is where it comes from. <laughs> they're releasing into the wilderness of the scapegoat after the transfer of sin was to teach us of what would happen to the sacrifice that is Jesus Christ after he had died. That was the teaching of the death and resurrection of Christ. And as I said, a God could not die and resurrect. And so to complete the picture, God instructed that two be used. One to die and the other to live as a picture of, of Jesus' own death and resurrection. But see this. The believer is also in this. Because remember, the God is dying in place of the sinner. And so if you are dying with Christ, you also died and resurrected with Christ. So if the scapegoat was set free, guess what? You also were set free. You also were set free. Verse 12. And 13. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seed that is on the testimony lest he die. So Aaron was to burn some sweet incense and to bring it inside the veil as a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. And this cloud of smoke was supposed to cover the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant, also called the Ark of Testimony. And I think the incense was to cover the smell of blood. There's a lot of blood. So the incense was to cover the smell of blood, but also as a picture of how God's people smell before him. That is how he sees them in Christ. According to Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. The fragrance. 
that is coming from the burning of incense. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. So he's saying the bringing of the incense before God is how God smells his own people. They smell good. They smell good. They smell good because of Christ. (laughs) Verse 14. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15. Then he shall kill the God of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring his blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So Aaron was to bring the blood of the offering. And he was to sprinkle seven times the blood of the sacrifice of both the bull and the goat on the mercy seat. Why seven times? Because you have to be thinking and asking questions. Why not one time? Seven times. Seven in Hebrew is a number of completion. So it's a type of the completeness of the blood of Christ who is the mercy seat. Because the New Testament clearly teaches us that the mercy seat is Jesus Christ himself. So Aaron had to sprinkle blood seven times as a type of the completion and perfection of the blood of Christ to remove our sin. And that is why the writer of Hebrews said he offered once for all, once for all time, one time he did it and he perfected it by just one offering. He completed. And that's what the seven was representing. So the law was satisfied for the sinner by death. We need to understand this. The law was satisfied for the sinner by death. Aaron could only approach God safely with blood on the message suit. Because it is the blood that makes atonement. God says, if you have to approach me, you have to have blood on the mercy seat. It is the law that condemned. Remember the things that were in the Ark of the Covenant. There were two tablets that had the Ten Commandments. You had the manna, which was some kind of bread that God dropped from heaven. And he had some rod in there. It's not the rod that killed people. It's not the manna that killed people. It's the law that killed people. So God is saying, if you have to approach me, my law is always tending against you. It's going to kill you. 100% of the time. But this is how you're going to do it. I'm going to have a mercy seat. And I'm going to give you the blood and put it on the mercy seat. That makes it safe for you to approach me. And that blood and that mercy seat is Christ Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. As long as a sinner is still seeing the law of God uncovered. As long as you are still seeing the law of God uncovered. That is, without the blood that God commanded then they are not covered by the righteousness of the gospel. If you are in Christ, you should not see the Ten Commandments. You should not see the Ark of the Covenant. It has to be covered by blood. The Ark of Testimony needs to be covered by the blood of sacrifice. If you look at the law of God, you should only see the blood of Christ. For the blood of Christ provides complete coverage, complete insulation from the law of God. Otherwise, the law will always, always condemn you. It's the blood that stands between you and the law of God. It's the blood that stands between you and death. And yet, there are many 
who want to go, many preachers, who want to take you into the Holy of Holies and wipe off the blood with some bounty paper towels and say the believer is still under the law. No, the believer cannot be under the law that has been covered. That is a lack of understanding of the gospel and a wrongful use of paper towels. The blood of Christ completely satisfied. It propitiated and removed the wrath of the law. It did. So the believer died to the law in the death of Christ. The law has no more demands. The law has no jurisdiction over one who is in Christ because it has been covered completely by his blood. And that is the teaching of the gospel of grace. The law is satisfied. It's you who is not satisfied. Verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. See that again. For all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanliness. And so the blood that was shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat was to make atonement for the holy place. That is to clear the path for the removal of the uncleanliness of the children of Israel. And that uncleanliness was because of their transgressions and all their sins. This was not just for some of their sins, as I said, but for all their sins. And what that means is that all their sins and all their transgressions were reckoned as having been transferred onto the victim that died. All their sins were imputed. They were reckoned. They were charged to the victim. The victim had died in the place of those that it was given to represent, to make atonement for them. So the death of the victim was reckoned as the death of the sinner, even though the sinner did not die. Okay, So the sinner lived and the law of God acquitted them and saw them as righteous, but just for a year. <laughs> but just for a year. Remember the blood of bulls and gods could never remove sin. That is why they had to continue to do it year after year. But these were just types and shadows of what would become a permanent reality of those who were to be redeemed by a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. See that the sinner was not made righteous in their body by this transaction. The sinner did not feel righteous. The law of God said the sacrifice has been accepted and this person is righteous, but the sinner did not feel righteous. The sinner was made righteous in the court of law for a substitute had entered into their place and made payment on their behalf, which payment was accepted. If you owe a million dollars and I come and I make a payment on your behalf and I make exactly the amount that you owe, you're still poor. <laughs> still poor. You're not going to say, oh yeah, I made that $1 million payment. I'm rich now. No, you're not. You still have, you still don't have any money. <laughs> so when you get justified, you don't feel righteous. 
But the court, the law says you have satisfied your debt. You have paid 100% whatever you owed and the court does not care where you get the million dollars from. <laughs> as long as you bring the bond money, right? Exactly right. So the law required death and the victim died in the place of the sinner. And so the law was satisfied and because the law was satisfied, guess what? The victim was set free and God accepted the transaction as legitimate. God has to accept the legitimacy of that transaction. And praise the Lord, he has accepted the legitimacy of the transaction of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, what would you do? Who would pay for you? If God said no to Jesus. So the death of the victim removed the curse of the law from the sinner. It's the death. So it's the death of Christ that removed the curse of the law, not you. It's not your repentance. It's not your faith that removes the curse of the law. It's Christ himself in his death who removed the curse. Death is the curse of the law. So the death of Christ makes the elect in Christ compliant 100% with the requirements of God's law. That's good news. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We could never do the law because of the weakness of our flesh. And the weakness of our flesh is sin. But God's solution was to send his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Christ had a human body, but was without sin. And in his body, in his death, he condemned sin that we may be set free. And this way, the righteous requirement of the law, the law required that we die. And that requirement was satisfied in the death of Christ. It was fulfilled for us through Christ Jesus. So you see, Jesus Christ is just too glorious. You got to love Jesus. You, you have to love Jesus. <laughs> so listen to this. The same law that condemned you now justifies you as free. The same law sees us with the righteousness of Christ. And that is righteousness that the law requires and also honors. The law only honors one kind of righteousness, that of Christ. The law of God sees us as having paid all the bills in Christ. There's nothing owed and there's no bill in collections. There's no Christian who has a bill in collections as far as God's law is concerned. Even though there's a lot of teaching that sounds like it. There's no bill in collections. We have a perfect credit score. Perfect. We have paid everything on time that we ever owed because of the obedience of Christ. A gospel that is remaining and unmet requirements of the law for you to do is not the true gospel. If there's anything that you have to do today to please God, which Christ has not already done, 
then there's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. If the law still demands something of me, then it can only demand death. If the law demands anything from me today, it can only be demanding death from me. Why? Because in this state, I'm not able to give the law what it requires. (laughs) I can't do it. I can't do it. The only thing that I can give to the law is the death of Christ. I can only say to the law, whatever you demand of me was met in Christ Jesus. You go talk to him. He's my mediator. I am keeping my mouth shut. Talk to him and come back to me and tell me what he says. And so justification, the justification of the believer is to say the believer possesses the righteousness of Christ. And the law of God accepts that. Why? Because the law is holy. Remember, the law is holy. This is not just some arbitrary stuff. The law of God is holy, and so it knows not to make any more demands on you who are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. When the law sees the blood of of Christ, it knows exactly what that blood stands for. It stands for righteousness. (laughs) The law of God knows. You may not know this, but the law of God knows that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It knows that. And that is a declaration of the law of God with respect to the standing of the believer before God. The believer, like I said, is dead to the law as to live by it and to earn righteousness by it. You don't live by the law. You walk by the Spirit. That's what the teaching of the New Testament is. But sinners do not know the law. (laughs) They think the law is stop doing this and start doing this and... The law requires perfection from the day that you were born to your last breath on earth. 100% perfection in thought, word, and deed. People don't know that. That's what the law is asking. And people think, well, I didn't steal from my neighbor, so I'm good. (laughs) No, 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 no. You're not that good. The law requires perfect obedience. And because sinners don't know that, they try to put you under the law. They want to take Away your freedom from Christ. Because the gospel gives you freedom. It gives you freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not let yourself be entangled again by the yoke of bondage. What is the yoke of bondage? It's the law. Don't let yourself be entangled again by the law, by the yoke of bondage. Verse 17. There shall be, or we're not going to have service for the next two weeks. And I'm not going to be preaching here for the next three weeks. So I still have five more hours. It's going to be one mighty long sermon. But this is the point. I'm trying to work understanding. Because a lot of people are not doing this. I'm trying to give you understanding. It's things that you know that you've heard about, but they need to be heard over and over and over. Otherwise, it's tumble. Okay? Verse 17. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place. Until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. On the day of atonement, there was to be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when Aaron went in to make atonement. Nobody. And this was so that he may make atonement for himself, 
for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. That is very interesting and important teaching that we need to explore a little. Because it relates to the work of salvation and the hope of the gospel. People struggle with assurance of salvation. If you talk to the majority of professing Christians, their major struggle is assurance of salvation. And the reason is because they look to themselves for assurance. And that's the last thing and the last place that you want to look to for assurance. (laughs) Don't look to yourself for assurance. Look to what Christ accomplished for assurance. And that's what we are teaching. And this is one of those important nuggets that you need to understand as a Christian for your assurance. We need to understand what the tabernacle was all about. The tabernacle was God's meeting place with his people. But his people had to be taught how to approach him. His people had to be taught if and when they had been accepted. They had to be taught that. They could not just bulldoze their way in. They had to be taught that they were sinners and that sinners cannot enter into God's presence until the final and perfect sacrifice had been offered. Hebrews 9, 6 to 12. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. So this is the New Testament interpretation of what we are teaching. The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this. So this is God's explanation of why this was happening. That the way into the holiest of all, the holiest of all, the holy of holies, was where God appeared. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the way into that very presence of God was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Let's explain that. As long as the tabernacle was still standing, the way into the holiest of all was not yet open for everyone. That is, the people would remain outside, still unable to enter right into the presence of God. So as long as the tabernacle system was there, God was saying, the way for you to actually come into my presence has not yet been opened because the sacrifice that I truly require has not yet been offered. And for that reason, when the high priest goes in there, you guys, guess what? You stay outside. You stay outside. And what prevented them from entering into the presence of God? Because the perfect sacrifice had not yet been given. Listen to Hebrews again. Hebrews 9, verse 9 and 10. And actually we're going to continue all the way to verse 12, just making commentary on them because they tie to exactly what we are teaching. He says it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience, in regard to the conscience. 
concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So the writer of Hebrews is saying the sacrifices were not sufficient to cleanse the conscience of Aaron or him who gave it. But this has been removed by the appearing of Christ, which is the time of reformation. Verse 11. But Christ came, you see the contrast, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So the writer of Hebrews uses but, and but is a transitional device, a conjunction used to introduce a contrast to what has just been said. What has just been said was the tabernacle system was inferior because it could never cleanse your conscience. It could never give you righteousness. It could never give you peace. But, thank Jesus for but. But Christ came. Uh, God should put more buts in the Bible. Christ came as the high priest of good things to come. Good things that the law could not give a clean conscience, perfection, and an everlasting righteousness. Jesus Christ came with a tabernacle, a tent, not made with hands. That is his own person, his own body. He tabernacled amongst us as God's tabernacle, as God's meeting place with his own people. Because the mediator was the one in whom God's people met with God. When Aaron went before God, he went on behalf of his people. So Christ is our high priest and he is the tabernacle. He is our new meeting place with God. So Jesus Christ is our new tabernacle and our new meeting place as sinful men. So Jesus came with a perfect tabernacle made of the Holy Spirit. It's not of this creation. So Jesus is not of Mary's womb. Forget about the Roman Catholic nonsense. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. They have to come up with nonsense to say, well, Mary plays a part in your salvation. And because of that, they have to assign things to Mary that she was not. Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had some other kids after Jesus was born. Jesus was made of the Holy Spirit. He is not of this creation. Mary was of this creation. Verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that is past tense. Jesus obtained eternal salvation. Jesus did not make salvation possible for you. He actually obtained it. He accomplished it. He finished it. Jesus came with better blood, better sacrifice. This one who is not of this creation brought his precious blood and entered the most holy place, not once every year, but once for all time. Jesus had the blood of God because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He did not have the blood of men. (laughs) But he says, this one who is not of this creation brought his precious blood and entered the most holy place not once every year, 
but once for all time. Why once for all time? Because he obtained eternal redemption. He just did not redeem. He redeemed forever. He finished the salvation of his people. So there is a contrast between the law and the gospel. In the gospel, we have all the promises of the better things to come. We have a better high priest who brings better blood and who entered the the most holy place once for all time and finished the redemption of his people. And so the gospel is good news because Jesus finished and perfected the redemption of his people. And if the redemption is finished, what is stopping his people from approaching God? If what kept you from approaching God has been paid, if all the barriers that kept you from approaching God in peace have been removed, what is stopping you from going to God when you die? Because before Christ had come, the payment had not been made. So there was no way that you and I, if we lived then, if we had died, we could go to God right away. And that is why there was the Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom was not heaven itself. It was a temporary holding place of God's people waiting for the final price to be paid. Okay? Listen to what Leviticus 16, 17 says. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting. When he, the high priest, goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. That he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting. Why? Because that's the place where God is. And no man is supposed to be in there until what? Until atonement had been finished. And then the rest of the people could get in to meet with God. So what is holding the people from getting in? They are waiting for the high priest to make the payment. They are waiting for the high priest to finish the work of atonement. They are waiting for the high priest to come out and tell them that the work has been done. This excellent theology. In the Old Testament, the sacrifice and the priests were separate. The priests brought a bull or a lamb, or a goat, and offered it. And so the high priest could offer the sacrifice and come out alive. The sacrifice was dead, and the priest was alive. The sacrifice was dead, and the priest was alive. And so there was no problem with the priest coming out and summoning the people. Once the priest came out, those who were outside knew, everybody knew, that the sacrifice that had been given had been accepted. Because the priests had made it out okay. Remember the instructions were, you die, you die, you die, you die. So if the priests came out alive from the tabernacle, everybody knew that the sacrifice had been accepted. Okay? But we have a problem. We have a problem with Jesus 
because he was both sacrifice and priest. And in his language, Jesus said he was offering himself. Jesus was both high priest and sacrifice in one. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27 says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, listen to this, he did, that's Jesus, once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus offered himself up as the sacrifice and as the high priest. So if the high priest died, if the high priest died with and as the sacrifice, then who was going to announce that the sacrifice had been accepted to those who could not go in to meet with God? Who is going to announce it? Who knows that the sacrifice has been accepted? Who knows? No one can get in. These people are not allowed to get in because just one step in, boom, you're dead. How are you going to know that the sacrifice has been accepted? This is the gospel. And this is the message that a lot of preachers can't preach. If the priest died as a sacrifice, who was going to finish the work of bringing the blood into the Holy of Holies because the sacrifice died on the altar way before the blood was taken to the Holy of Holies. Remember what we learned, the altar was the first piece of furniture as you open the door. And God says, you need to bring this blood all the way into the Holy of Holies. So if the sacrifice is Jesus and is dead, and he's supposed to be alone in that, who is going to take the blood to the Holy of Holies to make atonement? Who's going to do it? (laughs) What am I saying? This necessitates the dual nature of Christ as God and man and the resurrection of the sacrifice. As man, Jesus was the sacrifice. It is he who died as a man, but as God, he did not die. (laughs) He was the high priest to finish the procession of worship right into the Holy of Holies. But even more, in the tabernacle of meeting, the coming out of the high priest to announce that he had finished the work of sacrifice was a type of the death and resurrection of Christ. Once Christ had been offered, how do we know that the sacrifice that he offered for our sins was accepted? How are we to know? There's only one way to know that he came out of the tabernacle. That's the only way to know. There's no other way. That's the only way to know that he came out and he resurrected And he announced it. And now God's people, the way has been opened. Opened for them to approach God in peace. Even right now, if you die, the way is clear, is clean. Highway is so clearly marked out. Jesus. (laughs) Let me show you something just in case you think I'm making it up. Matthew 27, 51 to 53. Matthew 27, 51 to 53. Then behold, the veil of the temple, this is the very same veil that Aaron was not supposed to go beyond except on the day of atonement. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split 
and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Why were they raised? And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, (laughs) after his resurrection, after he had come out to announce that the work had been done, these people can't stay dead. They can't be, they have to come to God because the payment is made. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So once the way had been opened by the payment of the ransom price by Christ Jesus, God's people could now come into his presence. There was no reason for them to remain without access to God, separate from him for lack of ransom price because he said it's finished. He paid it all. So I believe as Apostle Paul teaches, that when a believer dies, their spirit goes to be with the Lord right away. There's no reason for them to wait. Waiting for what? The payment has already been made. The veil, the curtain has already been torn. Anybody can go in. <laughs> right into the presence of God. So the resurrection of Christ, this sermon is for the resurrection weekend. Because I'm not going to be here. Okay. So the resurrection of Christ was God's testimony that he had accepted the work that the high priest, Jesus Christ, had accomplished in the salvation of his people. And that it is now safe for those who are in Christ to approach God in peace. God had accepted the blood as holy and undefiled and the payment as full. And so he raised him from the dead. And that is what was represented also by the scapegoat. The scapegoat did not die. That was Christ being set free. And that was God's people being set free. The gospel is good news because Christ, our high priest, was accepted on our behalf. And his work as a sacrifice, as our high priest, was also accepted on our behalf. So the writer of Hebrews, again, would say in Hebrews 10, 19 to 22, it's impossible to teach Leviticus and not go to Hebrews. <laughs> Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So you see, the veil of the curtain, uh, the temple, actually represented the body of Christ himself. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So now we enter into the holiest with much boldness by the blood of Jesus and not by the law and not by the blood of bulls and gods, but by a new and living way, which was set aside for us through the veil that is his own body. So the law was the dead way. The law is always the dead way of approaching God and cannot be mixed with the blood of Jesus to enter the holiest. The blood of Jesus is the new and living way. Through the rent veil, the body of Christ rent by God's wrath on our behalf. And we now have Jesus as our high priest over God's house through whom we enter into God's presence. 
And because of all that excellent work and the qualifications of Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near. Unlike the children of Israel, they could not draw near, but the believer is called to draw near without fear. He says, let us get close to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, cleansed from an evil conscience of dead works by the blood of Jesus. Okay, And the last few lines, finally. In Leviticus 16, verses 30 and 31, God says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. So it turns out that the day of atonement was also set aside as a Sabbath because it anticipated the complete rest of God's people on account of the finished work of the high priest and sacrifice that is Jesus Christ. It was a Sabbath day. And so the Sabbath has always been the rest of God's people resting in the finished work of Christ. And now we enter into that rest by the blood of Christ through faith. Praise the Lord. We are done. It wasn't that long. We are having communion today.